Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and today we are going to continue journeying through our series, Faith That Works, where we're going verse by verse through the New Testament book of James. This in-your-face letter that's really about one thing, faith and works, or the relationship between our beliefs about Jesus and our actions in the world. And to begin, I actually want to introduce the most R-rated movie I have ever mentioned here at E3. A couple things. First, I promise this relates. Second, if you are in any way morally squeamish, I'm not telling you to watch this movie. Do not email me. Do not go home and watch it. Three, Charlie, please don't fire me. The movie is Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street. No one cheered for this one. Interesting. This movie follows the real-life story of Jordan Belfort, who was a stockbroker who engaged in rampant, and I mean rampant, corruption and fraud in the stock market throughout the 90s, robbing poor people to make himself ludicrously rich. And this film is truly debauchery incarnate. Belfort's life was the epitome of greed, gluttony, and consumption. Money, sex, drugs, power, he just consumed it all without limit, which Scorsese depicts fully. I mean, it is just a nauseating spiral downward deeper and deeper into the gutter of human evil. But one of the most interesting aspects of this film, at least for me, wasn't anything that was actually in the film. It was actually how people responded to it. It captured the tension that we often struggle with between depiction of evil and endorsement of what we depict. You see, in the movie, Scorsese never explicitly says, this is bad, which led some critics to hate this film, arguing that depicting such evils without clearly condemning them inadvertently glorified them. But I find that critique to be misguided. And that's largely based on two key scenes of the film. The first is about halfway through. What we see is that Belfort throws an extravagant party celebrating the success of his fraud. And the humanity of everyone involved evaporates. It is truly one of the darkest scenes you'll ever see. Money empowers an explosive, disturbing display of drug use, abuse, and objectification. And the scene climaxes with this really fascinating shot. I'm a movie nerd, so if you don't care about this stuff, you can zone out for a little bit. But it's a tableau, essentially. And what that is, is it's a wide, unmoving frame, just capturing everything going on at the party. It captures it in a way that critics have pointed out mirrors Old Testament, or not, sorry, medieval paintings of hell. These old tableaus of Satan holding court. Scorsese doesn't say, this bad, right? What he does is he just shows us this painting of greed turning people into demons, creating hell on earth, and leaves it to us to judge what we think of such behavior. But the best example of this is actually the last scene in the movie, which I actually think turns the whole movie upside down. See, Belfort's spiral destroys his marriage and his family, his life. He ultimately is arrested and he's convicted, However, since he's quite rich, he serves only 22 months in a minimum security prison. And upon his release, guess what he becomes? He becomes a public speaker providing seminars about business 
strategy. Popular seminars about how you too could become a success like him. And as Belfort gives one such talk, the camera turns and just sits on this packed audience of people seeking to become this man. Someone who got rich robbing people like them. It pauses and then the movie just ends. You see, I think the criticism misses the point. Good art often depicts, but it leaves it to us, the viewer, to wrestle with its meaning. It doesn't tell us what to think. Scorsese depicts greed turning people into beasts with one goal, consumption. An obsession with more, more, more that corrodes their very humanity and their souls and destroys the lives of so many people. And without telling us what to think, he simply turns the camera on to us. The people looking at figures like this and wanting to be them, wanting what they have. And what he does in doing that is he asks us to weigh how we respond to what he's shown us. I think in doing so, he asks a provocative question. Having seen this depravity of greed, do we still look at Belfort's worldly success, at his money, at his lifestyle, at his luxury, and do we applaud him and want to mirror his path of wealth despite the destruction it's caused? And if so, what does that reveal about us. Scorsese asked, without preaching, without moralizing, do we still consider wealth to be the measure of the good life after all of this? And if so, do we realize that we are on trial right alongside Belfort, answering the same relentless questions about who we are, what we want, what we value in this world? And today, I bring this up because James is going to take a very similar approach. You see, James too believes that there is a cost to greed, that it eats away at our humanity and our soul. And what he's going to do is he's going to hold up a mirror to us. And he's going to challenge us to investigate our actions and our attitudes concerning what we treasure, to reflect on what that reveals about what we really believe as Christians is the good life, is the purpose of our life in this world. Is it to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves or to get more, more, more? We pick up in James chapter four, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money or profit. So James describes a traveling businessman, a merchant, who says, today or tomorrow we will go to X place for exactly one year to do our business and do what? Make profit. In other words, they believe that they control their lives, which they plan to use for their singular goal, making money. Follow me on that? Do y'all think James is cool with that mindset? No. James has a beef with this. Verse 14, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do, it is sin for them. You see, what James challenges here is the underlying presumptions that he perceives are going on beneath this merchant mindset. First, they presume that they control their time fully, exactly how long they will have on this good earth. Second, they presume that they control their location, where they will go and how long they will be there. Third, they presume that the purpose of their work is personal gain. And fourth, they presume that they control the results of their work. They will, in their mind, achieve their goal, making more money. And what James is pointing out is that he finds this quite delusional, which makes sense if you actually think about it. Let me ask you, do human beings fully control their time, location, activities, and outcomes? Can we fully, 100% know what tomorrow or a year from now will bring in our lives or this world? Answer, no. How many of us are deeply aware of this truth right now? How many of us knew exactly what the last year would bring and didn't have a single plan evaporate overnight? No. More so, as James points out, doesn't the brevity of our lives undermine this sense of control? James says that in the grand scheme of things, our lives are like mist. Here for a moment, and then as the heat of the day rises, it evaporates and disappears. The brevity of our lives. Life is short. And yet these people are sure that they will have long, profitable lives. James calls this what it is. He calls it arrogance. It presumes control over what human beings do not control. And worse, their planning doesn't occur out of respect for God's purposes or his will. Does their attitude reflect the belief that they are dependent on God for their lives, that they're dependent on God for direction of what they do? No. They believe fundamentally that their lives are their own. Thus, they boast in their successes, their glory, their achievements, not God's. Now, it's important to note that James isn't opposed to all planning or business as a general thing. The problem that James sees here is their lack of reverence and humility within those. We should plan, but with humble dependence upon God. Realigning our plans when they're revealed, quite frankly, to be in opposition or different than his. Our lives, according to James, are in God's hands and they're for his purposes because he's the creator and sustainer of life, not us. Everything we have and do is a gift of grace in James's worldview. Thus, the good life isn't believing we're in control and trying to get as much as we can. The good life is found and looking for God's guidance in everything, which fundamentally has to or impact our time, our talents, our wealth, our treasures, our business pursuits. And James says, you know this, guys. You know this. Just look at reality. Look at the Bible. It's all there. You know of God's care. You know about your own finiteness, that you should trust in the infinite God's guidance, but you're failing to act on that knowledge. And believing that their lives and their work are fundamentally their own, 
their financial activities become sinful in James's mind. They're used for the wrong things, with the wrong attitude, with the wrong posture. They reveal that these merchants hold an eternal disregard for God. And this mindset, as we're about to see, also inevitably creates harm for others in James's mind. A while back, I did a sermon on a hierarchy in the book of James, and we explored what I called at the time one of the most intense passages in this letter. And good news, we're getting to the most intense passage in this letter today. Like Jesus, James is about to put on the hat of the Old Testament prophet when they warned and challenged powerful abusive Israelites about where paths of greed inevitably lead. And I'm just going to read the whole section and then comment on it because it's designed to be read as a whole. But it is relentless accusation and warning. All I can say is buckle up. Here we go. James chapter 5, verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent or the righteous one who was not opposing you. Who's feeling good about themselves? Quick pull of hands. James addresses the rich, which for him refers to anyone wielding and benefiting from economic oppression essentially profiting off the suffering of the poor. And he calls them to repent, to change course. He casts them in direct opposition to God and his will. And specifically, James targets three things that he believes they've placed their trust and affection in. Wealth, which probably includes things like storing up food at this time, clothing, and money, which are being consumed in some way. Their wealth rots, becoming moldy and incapable of nourishment. Who wants to eat rotten bread? Their clothing is eaten by moths, becoming unusable for what it was designed to do, outward protection and physical appearance. And their gold and silver, their money corrodes, which reflects an Old Testament argument against idols, the stone and wooden statues of gods which were deemed to be worthless because unlike Yahweh, the eternal God, they corrode with time. They do not last. The image beneath each of these is impermanence, is it not? They are things that do not last. And thus, entrusting this, this mist that fades, instead of God, they've placed themselves in a dangerous position. They took God's gifts given by him, intended for advancing his purposes, and made them their gods in this world. And all that they're going to find is that these things fade, betray, and fail them in the end. James describes their greed 
like fire, consuming and corroding their humanity, their lives, just like these riches that do not last. It carries a great personal cost, trusting in the wrong thing, relying on these things that are impermanent. But James also believes that it leads them to partake in the very things that God is seeking to end in his good world, fundamentally oppression. James says they refuse to pay the poor that work for them, which if you read your Bible is something considered a great injustice across Old and New Testaments. Some rabbinical texts equate refusing to pay the daily wages of those who work for you to murder, greedily taking away another's ability to survive in this world. Do you think that was cool for God's people to do? Really? Anyone here think yes? I'm going to guess no. James reflects that same argument here. He says they murder the innocent or the righteous among them, the poor and the oppressed who are following Jesus, who oppose injustice as he taught. Their economic oppression is starving and leaving destitute the poor that Jesus commanded them to care for. You had one job, feed my sheep. Are they doing that? No. Jesus commanded them to care for their neighbors, but they've lived in luxury and indulgence instead at the expense of their neighbors. And James condemns it all. The wealth, how they've acquired it, what they're doing with it. He uses some of the harshest language you're going to find in the New Testament. He warns, God hears the cry of the oppressed. Just read your Bibles. Flip open to the Exodus story. He hears the cries of those downtrodden. And he will rescue them, James says. He will reverse how this world works in all its broken ways when his kingdom fully comes. It's essentially the same thing as saying, just wait until your father comes home. Do you really want to be propping up injustice when the God of justice knocks on your door? Anybody? No. Just wait till dad comes home. It ain't going to be good. It's harsh. But like the Old Testament prophets and Jesus, when he uses this kind of strong imagery and language, it's because he's trying to communicate how serious this is and that he wants them to change. James doesn't believe that these people are hopeless. He doesn't hate them. He just thinks that they need to change course because what they're feeding in this world is disastrous for them and other people, and God wants them to go a different way. And he's right. The Wolf of Wall Street produces a visceral reaction within us because if we are honest, we know that what it depicts is inside of us too. We feed this mindset of consumption constantly looking from stuff to fix us, believing that our peace and our security, even our salvation sometimes, will come on the other side of more, more, more. More cars, more money, more in the bank account, more comfort, more luxury. And y'all, it makes us sick, does it not? We get the thing we strive for. It doesn't fix us. And instead of questioning this formula, we just move the goalposts. We move on to trying to get the next thing. It's a spiral downwards. We think that what we're consuming is something that we own, but really what we own ends up consuming us. Am I preaching yet? And there's always a reckoning 
when we trust in mist and what's impermanent. See, at the end of these brief lives, we've discovered that all we've collected is what fades. I don't know much, but I do know that I've never seen people with more regret than those who wait until the end of their brief lives to realize that what they thought was treasure was in reality and permanent junk that cannot come with them. That they gain the world, but missed experiencing love and presence with family and friends and God. That they gain the world, but miss being part of something bigger than themselves. That they gain the world, but miss the real treasure. That's a miserable realization to come to at the end, if you've ever seen someone go through that. But it's not just a personal cost, as James points out. Greed inevitably overflows onto others. If all we've cared about in this life are our plans, our wealth, our benefit, that doesn't just change when we move up the social hierarchy or gain influence in this world. We get employees working under us, and without even thinking about it, we maximize our profits and minimize their livelihoods, believing all sorts of delusions about why that's a good thing. When we gain enough wealth to impact our world without thinking about it, what do we do? We try to reshape it in our image, consumption, not God's. We think our lives are about our comfort, our indulgence, and our luxury, not God's kingdom, not loving our neighbor as ourselves, and others pay the price. Has anyone seen that in the world? And y'all, James is pleading with us. He's inviting us to go a different way. Don't y'all want to go a different way? He's inviting us to trust in what's internal, invest in what's truly treasure. A life in Christ that's truly life, used for what's truly good. God's work of healing and restoring his good world. Does anyone want more of that than junk in their life? I believe two fundamental truths concerning what I own. First, everything I have, my breath, my family, my stuff, is a gift of grace from my God. It is not mine. I did not earn it. It was given. And two, because of that, as a Christian, my life isn't about me. My life's purpose is to humbly and graciously give back all that I have given, been given, which is everything, y'all. Humbly and graciously give back all we've been given. James lays out these truths. And then like Scorsese, he just turns the camera on us, leaving us to wrestle with the questions that they provoke. I had a couple come to my mind this week. First, who do I idealize and what does that reveal about what I consider the good life to be? Do I look at people who gain the world while creating hell on earth and long for their success? Do I consider it desirable because of its luxury despite the suffering it's created for the people God told me to feed? Or do I look at Jesus who gave himself fully in self-sacrificial love for the least of these and believed that he shows me the path to long for in this life? Do I look at the cross and say, that's success? That's success in his upside-down kingdom. Second, what do I treasure? See, James always believes that our actions reveal our true beliefs. So, 
What do they reveal about what I treasure? Do I spend more of my time, talents, and treasures on comfort or building the kingdom of God here and now? We all, to some degree, have the ability to choose how and where we direct the finances, the time, and the efforts that God has given us. So investigate them. What do they reveal about what I truly want more of in this world? Does where and how much I give reveal that I treasure more justice, equality, and healing, or more luxury, comfort, self-indulgence, and oppression? Does what I do with my limited time on this good earth reveal that I believe my life is about me or my God? And finally, where do I need faith to work on my generosity? James believes in a faith that is generous and that works for us and his world and other people. And I believe that a generous faith can work on us. Does anyone want less anxiety over money, security, and scarcity? Does anyone want less of their value, their inherent worth? They want less of it tied to what you own or what you produce in the rat race. Am I the only one? Generosity can heal that in us. See, what I have found is that as I give as a discipline, as a habit, that addiction to more, more, more unravels. That fear of scarcity gives way to contentment and the peace of gratitude. As I give away what's impermanent, the grip it holds on my heart loosens. And I begin to invest in what actually matters, what's really treasure, healing and loving myself, my neighbor, my family, my God. And I also believe that a generous faith works for others too. James does not believe we can miss this point. You see, our generous God calls us to mirror his radical generosity in the world. Giving is a critical way that we get to be conduits of God's blessing to this broken world. The fact is we live in a physical world with physical realities and physical sufferings, and it requires physical help. Now, I'm not calling those who are destitute or impoverished to take food out of their children's mouths to give to something they can't give to in this season. All things come in seasons, and the challenge for people in seasons of poverty is to be generous with their time and their talents. I believe that. The point is that you're giving how much you can to something bigger than yourself. But I have a feeling that when it comes to the majority of the people in this room, myself included, this is very much a financial conversation, which makes us very uncomfortable as Americans. Don't touch my, my jewels, right? Most of us could give more, and we simply choose not to, because fundamentally, we think it belongs to us, that it's ours. And y'all, I have bad news. If we believe the Bible, if we believe in the Creator God, if we believe in Christ's story, it is not, period. End of story. Everything is a gift that we're called to put into play for God's kingdom, including our stuff. And hopefully, if you are here, you are giving to E3 in some way to keep the lights on and continue these worship services, to support our work connecting people and growth groups to serve the poor in Tallahassee, Guatemala, Haiti, and Uganda. All of that is only possible through the generosity of this body.
It is through your generosity and the work of the Holy Spirit that those conduits of blessing continue to flow. And I'm just going to be honest. If we are enjoying the benefits of a church but not supporting it, what we're doing is consuming the good it offers, the worship, the groups, the service, without ensuring that it's available to the next needy person who comes through our doors. And y'all, I don't think James thinks that's very cool. And if you're not ready to give to a church, for whatever reason, y'all, I have been there. If you don't trust churches, let's grab coffee, but still give somewhere. You're missing the healing of yourself and others that the discipline of generosity offers, that God promises to do through it. Our faith is meant to work. And we are invited to discover that our lives are about more than us that they're not about more and more and more. They're about this God capable of doing more than we could ever humanly imagine. And that if we surrender to him, we will find freedom from these things that corrode and eat us alive. So let us give back what we've been given and watch this generous God work through what we lay down to heal, to grow new life, to ease suffering and restore his good world because I fundamentally believe that that's the good life. And if you've ever just lived for yourself, you'll know that's good news. Amen? Amen. <sighs> Got a little worked up on that one, y'all. <laughs>